today we are continuing our series in Philippians. We're now in Philippians chapter 3, and I am going to be uh, reading a little bit of what we read last week, starting in verse 10, but the main part of the passage today is verse 12 to 16. So this is what the scriptures say. It says, this is Paul writing, he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And all of us then, who are mature, should should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. This is God's word. Recently, and very prominently in the news, you know, Matthew Perry passed away. But a few years ago, he wrote a memoir. Uh, And in his memoir, he, he wrote this. He said, nobody wanted to be more famous than me. I was convinced it was the answer. He says later on, he says, I yearned for it, being famous, more than any other person on the face of the planet. I needed it. It was the only thing that would fix me. I was certain of it. But then he, he reflects on this. He says, I was 25. It was the second year of Friends, eight months into it. And I realize the American dream isn't making me happy. It's not filling the holes in my life. Matthew Perry had, you know, this really long, complicated history and life of trying to, you know, become a whole person, fill those holes in his life, spending millions and millions of dollars on rehab. And I think he's telling us kind of what we all sort of know which is fame isn't the answer. I think we all kind of, we look at what's happening. You know, you can look at Will and Jada Smith and be like, ah, being famous isn't the answer. You can watch any biopic movie about a famous person or musician. You're like, I don't know if fame is the answer. We kind of all know that. We also are at a point where we don't really believe that our careers can save us. We're like, oh, I know I could put a lot into my career, but it's really... I don't see that many people out there championing, you know, becoming an engineer cured my life. Like, I don't hear people actually saying that. Um, even at the, the Oscars, it seems like when people reach the pinnacle and win this incredible prize, it doesn't seem like they're standing there saying, and now I'm a whole person, you know. Uh, we don't believe that our families can actually save us either, We kind of look backwards and we look forwards at the trajectory and we're like, yeah, my kids are probably going to let me down the same way I let my parents down, probably dysfunctional the same way my parents. Like, I don't think raising the perfect family is going to make sense of my brokenness either. We're kind of cold, basically, to any appeal 
to these sorts of things that can fix us, whether it's fame or whatever. Uh, And I believe the greatest hindrance for, for us and for the world today to embrace the hope of Jesus is our belief that nothing can transform us. It's our, it's our belief that there's actually nothing out there that can transform us. I don't think people are particularly calling Jesus out, like pointedly and picking on Jesus, like, yeah, all of this stuff works, but Jesus doesn't. I think it's, you know, nothing works, and Jesus is no different. Uh, there's all of these appeals to transformation, but we resist that because we've been had many times before. Like anyone with the student loan knows like, oh, getting that bachelor's degree in finance didn't cure me the way that, you know, $120,000 of debt I thought would, right? And the truth is, is that we live in a time of great pain. So it's like, I never knew Matthew Perry uh, seemed like a lovely person, you know, Uh, but he really like struggled with tons and tons of pain. And I think that what's remarkable about him is he did it so publicly and we all got to see that, identify with him because we are a people of great pain. And I think the greatest anguish that we have today is the sense that pain is inevitable, that that's just what it is. Um, So what can the good news about Jesus do to get into our bones? The gospel is not just a claim that it can change the world. Like sometimes we're like, ah, Jesus changes the world. But the gospel is this claim also that it changes you. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, all of that changes you. And it's good good news for you, for your soul, for your life. Uh, Christianity is not merely a belief uh, to transformation. Like I believe transformation is possible, but it's an experience of an ongoing change within your soul. Uh, the Christianity and, and who Jesus is is not an answer on a sheet of paper. Like, what fixes the world? And you write down Jesus, you know, fill in the blank. No, Jesus is the answer for life, like within life. And I think that this is really exciting. I don't think it's like a downer kind of thing. I think it's something that we forget all the time. That each doctrine, I know that's a big word, but each doctrine, each theology, each aspect of the Christian life is not describing some kind of mechanism, uh, but it's describing an experience. Like every long theological word is talking about something that you experience in your soul when you know Jesus. That's what it's all about. Freedom is is a doctrine that you have freedom in Christ. That is a doctrine that you experience in your bones and in your soul and in your life. Forgiveness is a doctrine that you like know deeply. Grace, healing, love, inclusion, the church, these are all doctrines of experiencing Jesus. And that's pretty great. Uh, Paul asks us in this passage, kind of challenges us through his own speaking of, uh, are you running after that kind of knowing, that kind of experience? Are you straining towards the prize? Are you aligning your life to this pursuit of experiencing the doctrines of Christ, the resurrection, all the way into every crevice of your life? And so I want us today to not just 
put our faith in the gospel as a doctrine that we can ascribe to or that we can articulate really well. But I want us this morning to see how all of these truths about God are something that we can actually see and feel and know tangibly in our lives. As Paul says, I want to know the resurrection of the dead. I want to participate in it. Uh, And so I hope that it awakens some kind of like fire in our souls or something in between. I would take a little flicker. But anyway, my goals are so high. So first, what's the first thing that, that he describes is experiencing. He says here in verse 12, he's, he, after this, or before this, he's described how he's really, uh, you know, let go. He's deconverted from legalism, and instead he's embracing grace, and he's kind of telling us, like, nothing works except for Jesus. This is what we should do. We should pursue the resurrection. And then he says very humbly and very honestly, not that I've obtained all of this. Like, not that I have this down, kind of, kind of shocking. He's like, this is it. I haven't actually gotten there yet. I'm, I'm definitely trying, but I haven't arrived at the goal that I'm even telling you is the goal to have for your life. He's like, I'm not, I'm not a finished product at all. I haven't got it made. I haven't put my life together I haven't seen how the gospel and the resurrection and the sufferings of Christ apply to each part of my daily life, my story, all. He's like, I'm, I'm not there, but I'm trying to hold on to it. I'm trying to like grab it as, as best I can. You know, like when you're flying down a ski slope and you lose, you know, one of your poles and then you're riding up trying to get the pole back. And you're just clinging on to the little string that is pointless, right? As you slide down a mountain. He's like, I'm trying to grab onto it. I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to grasp and understand and comprehend the reality of Jesus. Uh, it's, it's a, I think, a really, I think, wonderful thing, especially for us who are in the church and grew up in the church and had parents that told us all about these things, to kind of understand this, that, that Jesus cannot simply be good talk or good conversation. Um, we need to see and know Jesus himself changing us. If he doesn't and if he can't, what's the point? Uh, what if you are who you are, you know? What if... You know, it's not like there's nothing that you can tweak in your work or your busy calendars or your strenuous activity. What if you're just fatigued from droning on and on and on and everything inside of you is unmoved, you know? Paul says, though, I'm not a finished product, which maybe that's you, probably. I mean, if the Apostle Paul was saying, I haven't grabbed hold of all of these things clever twist after saying, obviously everyone should believe this. Then he says, I'm not there. But this is what he says. What is he trying to hold on to? He says, I've not arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me, making me his own is what he's talking about. We're kind of haunted with this echo internally in our doubts of what if I am who I am? 
And Paul is saying, I'm a mess. I don't have it figured out. I haven't attained this thing. I'm trying to grab hold of it, but it, the gospel, Jesus has grabbed hold of me. And his, and his fingers and his hands will not let me go. There's this firm grip on my life and I belong to him. Paul says, he's made me this guy who did all of these things and believed the wrong things and, and did awful things to other people, he has made me his very own. The biblical language for transformation is becoming. It's, it's about God making, transforming us like a, like a potter with clay, molding and shaping it. The, the image of a person growing up and becoming something else. Jesus indwelling of our lives so that we can experience the good news it causes us to become. He makes us. He makes us who he makes us his own. It's not an upgrade. Uh, sometimes we want upgrades or new operating systems just to kind of download and put inside of us. He's bringing you into his act. You're like your actual true existence. He molds you. He shifts you. He heals. What are you becoming in Christ? You're becoming his own, his. Paul says what we can all say. I can't hold on to Christ, but he's holding on to me. You know, are you overwhelmed with doubts? Are you like in a rut, just kind of stumbling along? Are you losing grip on your faith that's so rich to you or was so rich to you in your life and you're kind of floundering about on it, failing to keep your head on straight, failing to keep your like faith correct in your mind? Paul says, well, he's the one that's holding on to me. Not that I've got all of this stuff figured out. And so this is the doctrine of perseverance. It's a great word. Uh, the doctrine of perseverance. Calvin wrote about this a lot. Often, sometimes people talk about it as perseverance of the saints, but that's just a letter and an acronym that is really not about what Calvin wrote about. Anyway, it's about perseverance, that God has this endurance towards each of you, like that he does not grow weary or tired. His hands don't get like fatigued holding on to you. Uh, another way to describe it and that has been described is his enduring union with you, that you are united with God and that will endure through all the tests of time and trials and conflicts. Like for all of eternity, your being Christ's will endure. It will persevere. You are united with Christ in all circumstances, even when you're weak, even when you're tired, even when you're flailing around, not even sure, can I take hold of this faith that I've given my life to? You're still enduring because Christ is enduring with you. And so the thing to experience is God's grip on you. Uh, the perseverance, Christ's perseverance to hold on to you. And so this text is essentially saying, let's hold on to the identity as treasure, like the identity that Christ has made me his own. And that gives us all the freedom in the world. It frees us from guilt. It frees us to overcome our shame. It brings us into the center of the kingdom of God. Christ has made me and he's not letting me go. What a, what a bliss, right? What a happy, wonderful thing. 
The next experience that he talks about, he says this, but there's this one thing that I do, which is great. So now he's going back to, I have figured one thing out. I've got it down. This is the one thing. I forget what's behind and I strain towards what is ahead. You know, in the passage before, Paul's uh, living under just like this intense weight of legalism, right? He's living underneath the burden of actually succeeding in it, which is a rough thing. When you win at being right all the time, that's actually more scary than winning at being wrong. I don't know. Have you met people that win and are right? It's devastating, you know? It's like Kobe is like, he wins and he's right, you know? Had a text thread with some friends yesterday, really wishing LeBron would treat Anthony Davis a lot more like Kobe Bryant treated Pau Gasol, which was a total jerk thing, but he won, right? And he was right to treat Pau Gasol that way. So twisted. Paul is underneath that burden of being right, being legalistic, being like a motivator, having all of this passion, having all of this zeal, and he is under the weight of it. His past is filled with pride and arrogance and vengeance, like literally harming the church that he now loves. He had it in his memory, pridefully standing over slain Christians while having hate burning in his soul. That's like had to be a core memory of his, of burdening people with law over and over again, pouring it out over, like getting them to work harder and to to try a lot more and more and more. So like what kind of regret must Paul have like had his life consumed with? Like so much guilt, so much regret. Like I think about like a few circumstances that I've had in like my 14 years of ministry and, and, I, and I'm overwhelmed by it. Like the regret that I've had of when I did things wrong. But here he is, he's like, you know, I'm pressing on. I'm forgetting what happened. How does he do that? Jonathan Saffron Four, he's really great. Especially when I was in college, I thought he was like the best. But he wrote this book, Everything is Illuminated. There's a terrible movie, not because any of the people are involved in it. They just wrote a bad script. So don't watch the Elijah Wood movie. Just like read the book. It's really good. But he talks about this character who who cowardly betrays his own family, his own loved ones, his own village. And then there's this awful fire and rampage that, that kind of destroys everybody that he loves. But then he has to continue living in this place. Uh, And this is what this character, this is what his life is like after that and the regret. And this is a long quote, so it's story time with Brad. He awoke each morning with the desire to do right and to be good and to be a meaningful person and to be as simple as it sounded, but as impossible as it actually was, he tried to be happy. And during the course of each day, his heart would descend from his chest to his stomach. By early afternoon, he was overcome by the feeling that nothing was right and that nothing was right for him. And he was overcome also by the desire just to be alone. By evening, he was fulfilled, alone in the magnitude of his grief, alone in his aimless guilt, alone even in his loneliness. I am not sad, he would repeat to himself over and over. I am not sad as if he might one day convince himself 
or fool himself or convince others. The only thing worse than being sad is for other people to know that you are sad. And so he says, I am not sad. I am not sad. Because his life had unlimited potential for happiness insofar it was as, as it was a completely empty room. He would fall asleep with his heart at the foot of his bed like some domesticated animal that was no part of him at all. And each morning he would wake with it again in the cupboard of his rib cage, having become a little heavier, a little weaker, but still pumping. And again, by mid-afternoon, he was overcome with the desire to be somewhere else, someone else, someone else, somewhere else. I am not sad. Great writing. Paul, I think, had to have known that kind of regret, right? This is a character overwhelmed with guilt and sadness and loss that he participated in. I can only imagine this kind of thing is lurking inside of you and lurking inside of me. It was definitely in the background of Paul's life. Except Paul says, there's this one thing that I do. I forget what was behind. And I strain now just for what's ahead. It's like the image of a runner at the very end of the race, like leaping and clawing and trying to, trying to win at the very end. Or like last week, Fernando Alonso barely beating Checo, right? Like at the very end, some of y'all know what that's about. It's, that's the kind of image. of It's this great motivational mentality of, I'm going to keep going forward. Uh, and maybe it's like, oh, has Paul sort of created this pre-Ted Lasso mentality of being a goldfish? Is that what it is? Of like, oh, I just forgot how I messed up. Like, that's what you need to do. Is that the mentality we need to create? Or just have this idea of let's just do a fresh start over and over again? Like he just has this mentality to put it away. But remember the quote that I was just reading. This guy woke up every day trying to say, I'm not, I'm not sad. I'm happy. I don't have regret. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go achieve it. But by the end of the day, he was just trying to convince himself or fool himself. I'm not sad. I'm not guilty. I'm not overwhelmed. Uh, Maybe one thing we could think is, well, maybe Paul feels that he's paid his debt to society. That's how he can forget and just go ahead, like move forward. That he somehow went to everybody and and repaid them and reconciled with each person that he had wronged and he he did that step and he did it really well. Uh, But with what could he repay? Like lives lost, either to legalism or to his own throwing of stones. No, Paul can't leave it behind because he just has some sort of amnesia that he creates or some motivational thought process or him going by and paying penance to other people. He can only leave what is behind if there is a greater reality hanging over his past. Paul's describing this really cantankerous, messy doctrine of forgiveness that he has experienced so deeply that he knows I can forget that which has already been forgiven of me and I can run forward. 
It's like the story of the man who was, who was paralyzed and brought to Jesus' feet. It's a classic kids. It's like not all of the stories about Jesus make it into a kid's Bible, but that one always does because they tear the roof apart. And I think kids love the idea of a roof being torn apart. And then they, at least I did. It's like, did they have a pulley mechanism to like drop this guy down? Anyway, we love it as children and we love it as adults. And that in that story, the paralyzed person comes to the feet of Jesus and Jesus is teaching and I'm sure it was like way better than this right now, but he's teaching, people are glued in, the person comes down and he looks at this man who's paralyzed and he says, your sins are forgiven, which is like so odd. Like why is he forgiving a paralyzed man his sins? Part of it's like, what kind of sins could he have committed? He's paralyzed. Surely, like if he did anything wrong, it's because other people were mean to him or made fun of him or walked over him or tripped on him. So if he had a bad thought or if he said a bad word to somebody or if he was angry, he has every right to be, right? Like he's a paralyzed man on a mat. And yet, like God in Jesus keeps repeating, like the main thing that this person needs in front of me is for their sins to be forgiven. And those words literally mean guilt removed, that that there's this weight that's hanging on him that is guilt. He is burdened by it, just like the quote that I read from Everything's Illuminated. Then uh, Jesus heals his legs, and he stands up, and he walks, having been forgiven of his sins, having been made healed, and he forgets what's behind, and he reaches towards what's ahead, which is a life abundant, forgiven. Only forgiveness from God offers you that opportunity to forget what's behind and pursue what's ahead. Only Jesus offers you that kind of opportunity. There's no amount of awesome motivational speaking. There's no amount of payment you do to society that will give you that ability to stand up, pick up your mat, and walk forward into a life abundant. Your guilt removed, your weight removed, the burden. How? Because Christ's work is to take it off of you and to put it on himself. Your addiction, Christ makes it his own. You know, your nights of carnage that you regret, Christ makes it his. Your rage at loved ones that you're ashamed about, Christ makes it his. Your codependent relationships that are really unhealthy, Christ makes all of that his. He removes the guilt off of you and he puts it onto himself, almost like a jacket, and he faces the punishment. And so Paul says, I'm forgetting what's behind, I'm running towards what's ahead because God has called me heavenward. The forgiveness of sins results not just in a freedom to forget, but an altered trajectory heavenward, like towards the prize. So that's the doctrine of forgiveness, to know. Like your sins have been paid for. There's a bigger word, but I'll spare you. The last doctrine we get to now, he says in verse 15, he says, all of us then who are mature, should take such a view of these things. He's back to super confident. Everybody should think like I do. 
about these things. These are true things to think about. And he says, if on some of these points you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. It's really lovely. He's like, if you disagree with me on one of these points, it's okay. God's going to make it clear to you. So even if you're like, you're right now, you're like, nah, forgiveness doesn't work. Here's what I know. God will make it clear to you. If you're like, I don't know if I'm united in Christ. God will make it clear to you. I don't know if I will, if God's love will persevere with me. God will make it clear to you. But he's also here describing the trajectory of becoming mature or of sanctification, of being made holy, living a life faithful and obedient. He talks to, he says, not only will God make it clear to you, but in verse 16, only let us do this. Let us live up to what we have already attained. In the beginning, I'm a mess. I haven't figured this out. But let's at least, each of us, live up to what we already know about God, like what we've already seen. Growing into a deeper and deeper knowledge of God, understanding his heart. As you grow, you live faithfully to what you do know. That's the trajectory. It's this nerdy doctrine of sanctification, becoming in your living what you are in your name, in Christ becoming as you live a person who finds their security and their their understanding of who they are in Christ. Uh, There's this image of, of the Christian life, which is when you become a Christian, it's like, oh, the cross is so big. Look at all of the sins. But then as you grow up in maturity, you see that the cross gets bigger. Oh, the grace. Oh, the love of God. And it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger because you see more and more. Oh, it applies to that. I didn't know that. Uh, If you know that God's love in the very small thing, Paul is saying, live faithfully up to that. If you know that he's forgiven you, live up to that forgiveness. If you've come to know he has this grace, live generously within that grace. This is the kind of progressive process of learning how to hold on to that which is holding on to you. To travel a little deeper and deeper into the heart and the mind and the passion of God. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in one of his addresses in Mere Christianity, talks about this whole thing. Uh, He says this, Dozens of people go to him, God, to be cured of one particular sin for which they are ashamed of, like cowardice, or which is obviously spoiling their daily life like a bad temper. So there's people, dozens of people, go to God saying, I want you to fix this one small thing. Well, C.S. Lewis says, he will cure it all right, but he won't stop there. That may be all that you ask for, but if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. And he goes on to talk about like, hey, you know, he's going to give you all the medicine that you fully like deserve. He's going to give it to you all the way. It's like uh, Andy and Parks and Rec. Were you thinking of this? No, it's awesome. Mind meld. Andy in Parks and Rec is this really goofy character who never goes to the doctor and he has all of these ailments. But what happens is he gets some sort of disease and so they finally take him to the hospital. 
And so he goes to the hospital for one small thing that's wrong with him. And then what they do, once the doctors have him in the room, they start doing all of the tests and figuring out all of the ailments to him. They figure out his allergies. They figure out his inner ear problems. They like all of these things and the bill gets bigger and bigger and like he has to pay, which is the funny part at the end. But C.S. Lewis is describing the same thing. Like once you come and you submit to Jesus and you say, ah, could you cure my like, my bad temper? God will say, absolutely, come in. We'll start there. But we're, you know, God's going to give you the full treatment program. Paul says, my trajectory is now heavenward. This is what awaits. He says, I'm not perfect now. I haven't figured it all out now. Paul is saying, but I've signed up for the process. Won't you sign up for the process too? This is the doctrine of sanctification. So soon it'll be Christmas time, uh, which will be great. And imagine somebody gives you a really big gift at Christmas. And inside that gift is filled with lots of other wrapped items. So it's like one of those never-ending, or not, I don't know, some people give gifts like this. Danielle, you give gifts like this. It's like gifts within gifts within gifts. You know, the bag, you get handed the big bag and you take the tissue out and you see one thing and you're like, yes, a gift card, a salt and straw, but there's more in the bag, right? Imagine though, if what you do is you've, give, you've been, you know, you receive this gift, you open the tissue just a little bit, you see the first thing, you grab it, and then you throw the rest of it away. Like you throw the rest of the gift away. The person who gave it to you will be, you know, shocked and dismayed and they'll be like so crazy. They're like, no, 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 you have to come and take all of the gifts out of the bag, Right? And what is so true for the Christian life and for you is that you have received every spiritual blessing. The gift of the gospel has many features. It has forgiveness. It has God's union with you. It has healing. It has faith. It has hope. It has joy. It has sorrow. It has lament. It has all of these features for you resurrection from the dead. Grab hold of them. Do not settle for the first thing only. But what Paul is saying is like, you might not have figured out everything that's in this wonderful package of the gospel, but it's holding on to you. And it's going to let you know. God is going to let you see and let you know. So experience God's hold on you. Experience his forgiveness experience the deeper understanding and faithfulness to his truths. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, yeah, we're overwhelmed by the, the sheer amount of spiritual blessing you've poured out on us, and we have not taken hold of all of it. There's so much we do not understand, so much we have not pursued, we just praise you that you're holding on to us, um, that you've made us your own. Thank you for that, Father. Amen.